Hello, welcome back to Cherry Beckert's podcast for real estate and construction, where we discuss developing trends and market dynamics, as well as tax and accounting tips that may impact you and your business. Today, we're discussing the second part of our Opportunity Zone Fund series and diving into how the newly released final regs impact real estate specifically. I'm Shannon Makoshi, a tax senior manager in Cherry Beckert's real estate group with 23 years of experience in the tax world. My co-host is Mark Cooter. He leads up our firm real estate and construction group. He sits with me here in our Greenville office. Today, we wanted to highlight some recent law changes that were finalized by the Treasury that specifically apply to opportunity zones. The final regs that were issued earlier this year resolved some ambiguities, correct a few errors, and created some clarity around a number of real estate-specific issues for potential OZ investors. One area that had some revised guidance involving real estate in particular is the, quote, substantial improvement requirement. Mark, what did the regs clarify for investors in this area? Thanks, Shannon. So uh, the regulations did provide some more clarity in this area. We're going to go through four important uh, steps that they clarified in the final regulations. Uh, The Opportunity Zone rules require that either the original use of the property must start with the Qualified Opportunity Zone business or the Qualified Opportunity Zone business must substantially improve the property. Original use typically starts when the asset is placed in service for depreciation purposes. Substantially improved means the Qualified Opportunity Zone business must double its adjusted basis in the property after purchase and during any 30-month period that it holds a Qualified Opportunity Zone business property. So first, we're going to dive into substantially improve and talk about what that means. And then Shannon is going to go over uh, the original use of the property and how that might uh, impact certain taxpayers. So the first pack, the first aspect of substantially improved is that land doesn't have to be substantially improved to qualify as a qualified opportunity zone property. If a qualified opportunity zone business purchases a building located within an opportunity zone, the substantial improvement requirement is calculated by reference to the qualified opportunity zone business's adjusted basis in the building exclusive of the basis in the land on which the building sits. So for example, if I purchase a piece of property for a million dollars and the land is valued at $400,000 and the building is is valued at $600,000, I must focus on the $600,000 value of the building when considering substantial improvement. The final regulations confirm that the land used in the Qualified Opportunity Zone business will be treated as Qualified Opportunity Zone business property but also include an anti-abuse rule prohibiting land banking, i.e. acquiring land solely and primarily for speculative investment purposes. So that's good to know that the land amount doesn't count when you're looking at your substantial use calculation. So does that mean you still have to base the substantial improvement calc on the original cost? Yes, so that leads into a second important uh, point about substantial use and substantial um, improvement, rather. And uh, let's go into that. So uh, during the 30-month period, the Qualified Opportunity Zone business must increase the adjusted basis of the property by 100%. 
So it is the adjusted tax basis of the property, not the original cost as original regs left unclear that must be doubled during the 30 month period. So some qualified opportunities and businesses may see this as an opportunity to delay commencement of construction or rehabilitation to allow for more depreciation to reduce the property's adjusted basis. So for example, the $600,000 of cost basis in my building, I may say, well, I'm going to wait and let that depreciate down to 500,000. So I only have to put into rehabilitation cost of $500,000 rather than $600,000 of cost. However, the final regs provide that substantially improved property will qualify as qualified opportunities of business property during the 30 month period is being improved not before the 30 month period. A delay in improving the property could jeopardize the 70% test that we've been discussed, has been discussed in other previous podcasts. So Mark, what if the improvements I wanna put into my business aren't quote unquote real property? What if I've got some equipment or other property that's considered personal for depreciation purpose? How does that work? That's a great question, Shannon, and it leads to our third point about substantial improvement. Uh, in calculating the adjusted basis of the property, a qualified opportunity zone business can aggregate improvements with original use property that is integrally linked to the function of the qualified opportunity zone business. This allows other properties such as equipment to be purchased and not all the improvements have to be made on the real property. The non-original use real property must be improved by more than an insubstantial amount as a prerequisite to the inclusion of additional tangible property in the substantial rehabilitation test. Before the final regulations, the calculation of the substantial improvement was to be done on an asset by asset basis. So under my original example of a million dollar property with $400,000 in land and $600,000 building, all $600,000 had to be done on the building uh, because that was a primary asset but that was impractical in many situations. These rule, the new rules under the final regs would permit the purchase of, under example, of a warehouse and its conversion into manufacturing facility or other comparable use if the warehouse was more than insubstantially improved and the cost of the rehabilitation plus the cost of equipment installed in the building exceeded the adjusted basis of the purchase warehouse at the commencement of the rehabilitation. So under my example of a million dollar property purchase, $600,000 purchase of, of real property, you might improve that real property by $100,000 to convert it to whatever your intended use is, and then put another $500,000 of equipment into that building to officially have it operating as a manufacturing facility. You have therefore met the $600,000 minimum requirement for substantial improvement and therefore it would qualify. The other thing that, that your question leads to is for purposes of measuring substantial improvement, uh, how do you treat uh, multiple buildings on a similar property? And what the final regulations have added is that we can aggregate buildings on the same parcel or continuous parcels if they are operated in one qualified opportunities and business and they share facilities and other operating costs as an integral plan to that business. 
So this rule revolves around an issue with respect to purchase of multiple buildings when one building does not require rehabilitation, but the cost of rehabilitation and outfitting the remaining buildings exceeds the adjusted basis of the purchase asset. The final regulations permit a qualified opportunity of business to treat all the buildings located upon the parcel of land described in a single deed as a single property and the buildings that are located upon contiguous contiguous parcels of land described in separate deeds as a single property to the extent each building is operated as part of the trader business if that building operates exclusively by the qualified opportunities in business. So this just means that if I've got multiple buildings, I don't have to separate each asset by asset. I can put all my substantial improvements just on the property itself and meet the test. So these are some welcome clarifications regarding what constitutes substantial improvement. Another key of the tangible property of tangible property in the opportunity zone is what must be original use property. So as I mentioned before, under the two requirements of the opportunity zone rules, one was that the original use must start with the qualified opportunity zone business or the qualified opportunity zone business must meet substantial improvement of the property. Well, we've gone through the substantial improvement. Now let's talk about how could we qualify uh, for the original use rules. Um, so Shannon, tell us a little bit about the, how the rules uh, regulations clarify this issue. Yeah, so originally we talked about original use begins when property is placed in service and you can start claiming depreciation. The final regs include some examples that clarify what may still count as original use when we're talking about QOZ business property, when that property might have a, a few things different about it. For example, um, one of the things the regs clarified had to do with property that had been uh, taken under control of local government. It had been abandoned, bankrupt, foreclosure, or receivership. Um, the final reg state that a real property in a designated OZ that is purchased from a local government from one of these types of examples will satisfy the original use requirement. Another example is a brownfield site. This also will count as original use property according to the final regs. The land and the structures will be treated as satisfying the requirement to be classified as a qualified opportunity zone business property provided that the land is improved after its acquisition. And it's important to note there that the cost of remediation of any contaminated land may be included in the calculation of the substantial improvements, Mark, that you were just talking about. Another example the final regs gave talking about original use revolves around vacant property. This can count too. Real property is considered vacant if more than 80% based on the square footage is not currently being used. The real property vacancy period has been reduced from five years to one year if a building was building was vacant at the time the OZ designations were announced and through the time it was acquired by the qualified opportunities in business. If the building was not vacant at the time of the designation, the vacancy period is three years. Okay, well, the final regs definitely gave us more assurance to investors and about the original use and also substantial improvement. Another big question some developers have had about qualified opportunity zone businesses is what about triple net leases? Uh, the final regulations touched on this, 
So Shannon, what clarification do we get around these type of leases? Well, because the primary requirement for OZ businesses is they have to be active, the ability of a triple net lease to qualify as an OZ business was in question based on the proposed regs, since the main benefit of a triple net lease is the passivity it allows the owners, since the burden for the insurance, taxes, maintenance is on the lessee. Proposed regs said, quote, ownership and operating, including leasing of real property, is the active conduct of a trader business. However, merely entering into a triple net lease with respect to real property owned by a taxpayer is not the active conduct of a trader business. So it doesn't sound like the proposed regs were very favorable to taxpayers. So did the final regs give a thumbs up or any for any or all triple net leases? Well, it's still not entirely clear. The final regs preamble says in certain cases, a taxpayer that uses a triple net lease arrangement as part of the taxpayer's leasing business could be treated as conducting an active trader business, but the qualified opportunity zone business must have some meaningful role in management of the rental property. They failed to give a definition of a meaningful role, but they did offer a couple of examples in an effort to shed light on, on how these leases might be interpreted. In the first example, a developer constructs an office building which is occupied by a single tenant with a triple net lease and contains an office of the developer with staff to cover any issues that arise with that triple net lease. In this example, the Treasury says the developer fails to meet the active conduct requirement. In the following example, the developer constructs a three-story mixed-use building in which one floor is leased on a triple net basis, but the other two floors are not. The company has an office in the building with employees who carry out the managerial duties for the tenants who don't lease the building on a triple net basis. In this case, the company does meet the requirement of an active trader business. So still not a bright line test, but it gives you a little flavor of what the Treasury is looking for here. Yeah, so it sounds like they've left some unanswered questions as it relates to the activity that are really required to, for a real property to be a trader business for opportunities and purposes. Um, but based on the examples given, what I sort of am hearing from you is that some expense, expenses for management and some risk of, of uh, repairs and maintenance and things like that should still be considered in order for the business to be considered a trader business for under the opportunities and rules. That sounds right. Well, overall, the final regs brought some investor friendly clarity for those considering opportunity zones. Thanks for joining us today and stay tuned for our next podcast in our opportunity zone series that will focus on requirements to establish and operate a qualified opportunity zone business. And